You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Hello, I am Mahsa Vahdat. Hi, I'm Marjan. And you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on your radio dial. Also on digital radio and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Please subscribe. Is beating fast, and that's the rhythm I can dance to. I'm mighty glad I've got a chance to that one big heart that's beating fast. Tomorrow morning, let it rain. Tomorrow morning, let it pour. Tonight, we're in the groove together. Ain't gonna worry about stormy weather. Gonna kick old trouble out the door. Beat out old trouble on drum. Beat out old trouble on drum. Beat out old trouble on drum. And kick old trouble out the door. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. Beat me that rhythm on the drum. And kick old trouble out the door. Kick him out the door. Kick him out the door. Welcome to Radical Australian Community Radio 3CR, streaming live on 3cr.org.au. My name is Joseph Toscano, and once again, we have another human sacrifice for Radical Australia. Hello, Shay Anderson. Hello, how are you, Joe? Good, good. You're not worried about being sacrificed in the altar of Radical <laughs> Australia, eh? I don't think I got told I was signing up for that. <laughs> Didn't you read the small print? <laughs> Look, I, I first met you at the, the Tanaminaway Morbohina commemoration uh, with uh, your, I think it was your five-year-old daughter, if I'm correct. And I That's was, correct. And I, was, I thought, this is a man we need to interview. Obviously, when your daughter's 15, I'll interview her. That's if I'm still alive, because she seems like an extraordinary little human being. What's her name? Yasmin. Yasmin, yeah, she's extraordinary. She was the youngest speaker at the event up at uh, the Queen Victoria Market part of the event, and... Uh, She's got her heart in the right place. I mean, if, I don't think about the only thing I thought of when I was five was maybe my uh, lead soldiers. What about you? What were you thinking about when you were five? Oh, look, that's a. <laughs> I have no idea. I mean, yeah, uh, probably running around in the dirt and climbing the hills in the, at the back of our place, I think. That yeah. would be the sort of things I was doing. Yeah. Just to orientate our listeners to give them an idea of um, what year were you born? 76. And were you born in Melbourne or somewhere else? I was born in Melbourne uh, and we moved to Western Australia when I was about two. Right. So, so you've got no... Yeah, born in Melbourne, but yeah. didn't spend a lot of time there until later in life. Right. So uh, what's, your, what's your earliest memory about... I assume you wouldn't have any memories about Melbourne, but in West Australia, what's your earliest memory? Well, it would be climbing up the hill at the back of our place that had a little cave on it, and I remember a big rock. Um, I remember a lot of it, my friends climbing up with me. Um, we had There was a rope dangling down there. We didn't place it there, but there was a rope. You could kind of... It helped you get up the rock. You could probably do it without that. But climbing up there, looking out over the town, it was a tiny little town of, like, I think it was 1,200 at the time. Right. Um, but, yeah, that's probably my earliest memory is climbing that, that hill at the back of our place. Yeah, so what was uh, the town? Robin. So it's northwest Western Australia uh, in the Pilbara. Right. So what drew your parents to that part of the world? So my parents were linguists. Linguists. Um, they, were, ah. they were looking at the local language, the Injibundi language, which was the language of a people... Their traditional land, their their lands was a little way inland, but due to colonisation, invasion, they'd been pushed into this area. Um, and so my parents were documenting the language and they were Bible translators. 
Right. So their end goal was to translate the Bible into the Injibani language, something that didn't happen. Um, in, in large part, a few stories were translated, but basically the main thing, main work that they did was put the language into a dictionary. Right. So did, did they work for a, a mission society or...? Yes, yes. So it's either called Wycliffe or Summer Institute of Linguistics. Mm-hmm. Um, they... They worked for them. Um, as with a lot of missionaries, they had to raise their own funds. So they worked with them, but they were supported by local churches that the, my parents were connected with. Right. Did you have any brothers and sisters? Yes. So I have one brother and two sisters, all younger. Um, right. So yeah, what reasonably you... large family. Yeah. So what was life like in uh, you know in that part of the world when you're a little kid apart from climbing into caves and getting into mischief? Look, it was, it was the best memories of my childhood. So I lived there till I was 10 and it is the best memories of my childhood. Um, you know, it was, looking back, I know I was the only white kid in class. I At the time, that wasn't even a thought in my mind. It was just, these are the kids in my class. Um, it was... Yeah, it was just a lot of fun, and it was it was a great place to grow up. And I look back as an adult, and I know that a lot of a lot of people may not have had the same view of the town. Mm. Um, it was the sort of town that a lot of people would try and avoid, considered a bit rough. But for me, in my childhood, it was an amazing place to be. Right. So, in this class, were you the only white kid? Um, I should say I was sometimes the only white kid. Sometimes, there was yeah, other, yeah. yeah. But you were in the minority. You weren't the majority, basically, in the Absolutely. class. Absolutely. Yeah. Did the, did the boys and girls there, they talk their uh, their uh, language and you had trouble understanding? Or did you pick up any of the local lingo? I never remember having any trouble understanding anything. Right. Uh, and I never have any memory of a large amount of, indi- of their Indigenous languages used. There was two different... Um, Two different language groups in the town. Mm-hmm. Um, so the people whose country the town was on and the Injibani people. And so in class, yeah, from my memories, it was all in English. Um, I think largely it was the older people who spoke with their first language was Injibani or uh, Nalama. Right. And uh, was this a uh, religious-based school or a public school, secular school? It was, it was a public school. Right. Uh, the only school in town. Um, yeah. Did you think you, did you think you learnt anything in primary school? Not not just in terms of reading or writing, but in terms of you know being a being a human. Look, um, I mean, I guess as a child, it's just it's what I knew, and it, as a, but as an adult, I think it has. I think my time in primary school there has allowed me to connect, I guess, to connect with a wider range of people than would be normal for me, who is a middle-class white bloke. Um, I think, yeah, I've I've picked up the ability to connect with a wider range of people, uh, a wide range of people, um, and a desire to connect with people on their level. Um, I dislike situations where... I mean, like, where I'm seen as separate from the people that I'm amongst. Um, And the example I'd give of that in my adult life is when I, having lived in India, I disliked a sense of being separate because I was the foreigner coming in. I really tried to live in a way that would make me as much a part of the community that I was in as possible. And I think that comes back. A part of that comes back to my childhood and where I grew up. Hmm. So what part did uh, your parents' uh, religious beliefs play in your life when you were a, a young boy? Um, I mean, I, I went to church. I uh, went to Sunday school. I heard all the usual stories. When I was still in Robin, so Younger than 10, I put my hand up when there was a call to, you know, give your life to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that. Um, at the time, uh, 
it was a sense of not wanting to go to hell, in part. But also in part, it's just what everyone around me did mm-hmm. or was. Um, and, you know, I, I haven't looked back from that. In ter- I'm, I still consider myself a Christian. I have very mm-hmm. different views now than I did when I was at that age or in my 20s when I was more of a, I guess, w- what people would imagine as a, a, a traditional Christian or a conservative Christian in my 20s. Um, uh, so I, my views and perspectives have changed a lot, uh, but my sense of connection to Christianity, the Bible, um, Jesus, has remained mm. up until now. Mm. It's interesting that... As a boy of nine, you raised the question of hell. I find that uh, fascinating because it's not something that, uh, although I came from a what I call a Christmas Christian background, you know, we we go to church at Christmas Day. You know, hell didn't really play much of a part in my life as a small boy. It's just interesting that uh, you put up your hand because this concept of hell, um, you know, hell's hell's such uh, important place in your thinking at that at that young age yes i mean i couldn't imagine teaching that to my daughter no um, <laughs> and at, and at the same time if i believed it i would obviously teach it to my daughter because i'd want her to avoid pain and suffering yeah um so i can kind of i'm you know as yes but yeah i cannot um so did you finish all your primary school at Rowan or did you move, your parents move once that job finished? Yeah, so when I was 10, we moved to South Australia and we spent a couple of years there and then moved to country Victoria for a couple more years. I think I was 16 by the time we got back to, we moved back to Melbourne. Mm-hmm. So were your parents still involved in linguistics and being paid? The... No, they shifted to my father became a pastor after that, right. um, church pastor for five years. Mm-hmm. And then when we moved back to Australia, he became a, ca- a counsellor. Hang on, hang and on. My you, mum... you, said, you said moved back to Australia. What's oh, happened? to Melbourne, I'm sorry. Oh, Melbourne. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking, I've missed something here. <laughs> right. That's later on in life. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. So what was life like in for a teenager in regional Victoria? Was your father the pastor there too? Yeah, so you'd be the son of the pastor, so obviously people would expect things of you. Look, I think, I mean, I made the the cliched image of a teenage child of a pastor is fairly rebellious. Yes. I completely missed that. You missed that? (laughs) I missed the memo. Um, I was completely a compliant, trying to do the right thing sort of kid. Mm-hmm. Um, I developed away from that in later life, but at, yeah, as a child, I was um, I was yeah. what would be seen as a good kid, um, and but I would say life in country Victoria and country South Australia was pretty hard um, for me. Just moving to a completely different context and a completely different schooling system, um, while the structure was the same. For me, it was it was very hard to adjust to schooling in in the eastern states in South Australia and the eastern states. Yeah, look, you're quite right. It's um, I don't think parents realise the dislocation in a child's life when they just move, get up and move, especially you know as far as their schooling is concerned, because it. You get a whole new set of friends. You've got to start at the bottom. You've got to work your way in. So basically you never completed that journey. You never were accepted, were you, in high school? Or? Oh, look, I had friends in high school, I think. I think, I mean, one of the elements of of the move was in Western Australia, I had no concept of homework, for example. Right. Because... Yeah, in the in the context, all our work was done in the school. There was no the only homework I'd get is if I, as the teacher's pet, said I wanted to do more. Right, and that's the only way I'd possibly get homework, and I occasionally did that. Um, but when I came to the eastern states, homework was just part of life, and you know, being taking stuff home, getting it done, bringing it back. 
And it was actually quite a difficult thing to just pick up when everyone else knew it, when it was given as if I knew how this worked and I'd be able to do it. And I started with a pretty angry teacher who was pretty upset whenever I didn't get my homework done. So it was just a really tough transition, and I don't think I ever really liked school from that point on. Right. So did you complete high school? No, no. I quit in my second year of year 12, halfway through. Halfway through. So I was doing VCE over three years. Mm Mm-hmm. And by the middle of the third year, I was sick of it. Um, my parents told me if I could get a job, I could leave school. So my aunt helped me get a job, and yeah, I left school. Right. So, are you willing to identify where in regional Victoria you were living? Yeah, we were, we were in Maryborough. Maryborough. So, oh, yeah, of, I know I Maryborough. Yeah. Twelve thousand. Yeah. Um, yeah, kind of in between Bendigo and Ballarat. Yeah, it's got that famous, is it, railway station that was brought across from England. That's right, yeah. yeah. That's right, and the the story the locals tell is that in England someone made an error and it was supposed to go Mer- to Maryborough in, I think it's Queensland? That's right. There's another Maryborough with a lot more people yeah. further north and there was a admin error and they sent it to the wrong town. I have no idea whether that's true or not, but that was the story yeah, that would yeah. got, get told in Maryborough. Yeah. Well, it was part of the British colonisation process. It didn't matter which colony you went to. The major buildings were made in England and then shipped across and you'd kind of assemble them by numbers. So if you go to Khartoum and you look at the university at Khartoum and then you go to Melbourne you look at the university at Melbourne, there's no difference because it's the same... Uh, same architectural uh, plans, and yes. it was part of that process, which is interesting. Yeah, so, what type of a job would a young boy, a young man, get in Maryborough? So it wasn't until we got back to Melbourne that I got a jo- that I left school and got a job. Right. Um, although I should say, I mean, I did the usual, did a paper round in Maryborough, delivered leaflets when we got back to Melbourne. The right. usual, you know. Yep, that's pocket money work. That's not real work. Yes, yes. It's real work, but it's pocket money for kids, yeah. It totally is, yes. Yeah. So what did your aunt find for you? So she, I worked in exhibitions. Uh, so basically setting up, knocking down exhibitions that would go through, like the Exhibition Centre in Melbourne. Right. Now Jeff Shed, the various places in Melbourne that they have big exhibitions. I was moving furniture, setting it up, getting it ready for stalls and knocking it down again and it was great work because it was for me at the time it was work that I could call and see if there was any work tomorrow but I could also take off for three months and not ha- not have to worry about work and then just t- come back three months time give them a call is there any work get back in the flow of work it was the sort of work that a lot of backpackers did yeah, so you were living at home during that period I assume yes I was yeah. and and I was kind of I was getting into rock climbing, so I was trying to be also in um, northwest Victoria at a place called Rapalies, which was the place to be as a rock climber, um, as much as I could, so save up money and be there as much as I could. Why rock climbing? <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it's, the, it's the last thing on my mind as a teenager. <laughs> so I would say I, that, I mean, I, we'd all go surfing. Why rock climbing? Oh, because you're in Maribor, well, I see <laughs> There is a lot of crossover between surfers and rock climbers in culture, and you'd meet a lot of surfers who also rock climbed. And, and But I think it was... I got into the outdoors, bushwalking, and then rock climbing, Be, in part because I, school was horrible, um, or school was horrible for me, mm. and it was, some, it was an escape. It was also, when I got into rock climbing, it was the first time I could say, well, this is something I do that none of my friends could do. Um, it was just a sense of this is my thing and I'm quite good at it. And, you know, it it set me apart from my friends and saying, look, this is something I can do. Is there a, spi- so, yeah, it, is there a spiritual element to rock climbing? <laughs> well, there, there was a thought around rock climbers that every, every rock climber was trying to run away from some demons. Um, But beyond that, look, 
it's a, I, I think there is definitely a, a connection with country element to rock climbing, mm. which is, it, depending on how you do it, um, I mean, it can also be quite damaging to country and quite often damaging to sacred sites because large rock formations are quite often have a sacred, have a special sacredness to the local indigenous people. So there's um, elements of that having to be worked out between a culture of rock climbers, which are mostly white, colonial history, and then the local indigenous people. Uh, and I think recently, that rock climb, my understanding is rock climbers have been starting to do that. But back in when I was rock climbing, it wasn't on anyone's radar that we were potentially, you know, yeah. climbing up sacred sites and... Yeah, things Much have changed like, you know. in Victoria as far as rock climbing is concerned. You're quite right. Obviously, there yes. are sites you don't climb and sites you can climb, and uh, yes. people are more aware of that these days. Mm. I mean, yeah. it's like when I first went to Uluru in 1977. I mean, uh, my uh, partner, my wife, was Indigenous, and uh, we just camped at the base of the rock with the local people, and uh, you knew that you didn't climb the rock. It was that simple. You know, because yeah. there were local people living there at the base of the rock. But uh, you go in the Victorian countryside, there aren't local people normally living near those structures. Yes. Yeah. So how did how long did this, you know, three months on, three months off thing go? It doesn't seem like much of a career. Sorry to be uh, shy to <laughs> <laughs> say that. Well, I mean, when I, when I left school, my aim was to make a career out of outdoor activity so leading hikes leading rock being a rock climbing guide that sort of that's what I was kind of looking at doing as a career mm-hmm. so it and I and I was in the middle of doing a course that would lead towards that that would give me qualifications as a firstly as a guide for bushwalking um, hiking so I did I did have a some career in mind because my parents had been fairly Strong on, they didn't want me leaving school unless I had some idea of my direction. So they'd also talk through, well, why, what are you going to do if you leave school? Mm-hmm. And I'd shown them these plans. Here's a course I'm going to do. This will lead towards me getting work as a to, as a guide, a hiking guide. And then down the track, I thought possibly, you know, guiding rock climbing as well and maybe even mountaineering was off in the distance of what I might do. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, there was, I did have career ideas in this fairly, um, uh, what would you call it, in this life that I was living. Um, but, yeah, I continued doing this for a couple of years, um, and then I had what I described at the time as a calling and felt like I needed to move to something else. Um, still, in this time, still fairly involved in my church, still fairly strong. I was very strongly committed Christian, and I just had a sense that I was too, you know, there was something else for me. Right. Um, and so I actually quit rock climbing in a grand display of going to find out what I was supposed to do in my life and started searching for what I was supposed to do in my life in terms of service um, or in terms of, I would have used the word at the time, mission. Um, right. It's interesting you use the word calling. Is this something that um, most young people in your community would experience or would it just be a small group? I would say it's a small percentage. I wouldn't have said, you know, the, the group of people I was amongst at the time. I can think of several other people who would have described a similar sort of sense of calling. Mm. Um, but for me... Uh, yeah, but not not the majority. Right. Uh, is, the majority. So, is, is a calling something that kind you kind of one minute you're in one direction, the next minute, or is it something that slowly creeps over you? For me, it was a sudden thing. Right. Like I, I um, was at at a Rapley's camp, rock climbing, doing my usual thing, and I just had a sense that I needed to leave, and I didn't go back for didn't go back to rock climbing, or maybe. I'm 
I think it must have been almost a decade after that that I actually rock climbed again. Oh. I said, I'm leaving it. I'm not doing it anymore. I'm going to find something else. And I didn't quite know what that was. Uh, but I knew that I needed to leave rock. At the time, I felt I needed to leave rock climbing to find whatever else that was that I was supposed to be doing. Mm. And, 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 and how did you find that calling? Well, I'd always had a... a desire to help in some way people who were um, marginalised. At the time, I would have said poor, you know. And so my first thing I did was go to World Vision and volunteer full-time because that seemed like a... uh, That seemed like a place I might find something that I could, you know a direction for my life and mm-hmm. what I should do with my life. And I, so it was for about five months there, I started off volunteering full-time. Um, and then I got a job there and worked there for another few months. And finally that job finished up because the job I got was that we're shutting down the World Vision shop. We need someone to help us empty the empty the warehouse. Mm-hmm. And so I worked through that. It finished. And at the I'd been talking to other people about other things to do and where I was going to go in my life, and it, it just stopped at the right time that I jumped on to the next thing in my life, which was uh, joining a mission organisation. Right. And is it just something that fell in your lap, or did you do a bit of research and decide on which type of mission organisation you wanted to join? It fell in my lap... There was a woman that I was interested in that was in the same organisation. That's um, the old story, Shane. Look, and, and I was kind of, <laughs> I was a little careful. Like, I didn't want to be just chasing after this woman and say, well, I'm not actually, you know, looking no, It's the old story. You'd be amazed the number of activists who join things because of a woman. <laughs> you would, I've heard this story over and over again on, not just on the program, but, uh, or a man, you know. Can be a woman or a man, you know. That's, yes. Yeah, so the old, it's a variation of the flirty fishing. Remember flirty fishing? I don't. Now remember the children of God. I do, but I don't know the details of. Ah, uh, they used to have a. They, uh, this is when I was a young lad. They used to have a concept of flirty fishing, where they put attractive young devotees out in the streets to fish right. for souls. And they right. use, and they use sex. Like... They use sex as the bargaining. Is the bargaining uh, tool? Uh, and that's the seventies for you, Shane. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm sure you, you, we'll, we'll forget about that. So, obviously, you're interested in the organisation. The woman's just part of it. So, what what did the organisation do? So, the organisation, <clears throat> excuse me, sorry, the organisation was called Youth of the Mission. They basically trained young people to go out into mission work of various kinds. They they did a wide range of things um, from starting churches and trying to convert people and bring people into the churches to, uh, I guess, aid work. Um, they, they also supported local churches in various um, countries around the world. And and also primarily their their role was training so and training and then sending people out. So the main thing that youth with the mission itself did was a lot, run a lot of training for young people. And I mean, not always young people; anyone could attend, but their target was young people. So I joined up. I did a six month training course with them, which took me over to India, and I fell in love with India. And I kind of, I had to come back after the six months. That was part of the training. You're supposed to come back after you finish your training. Mm-hmm. But as quickly as I could, I got back to India again. That's where oh. I wanted to be. I joined up with a youth of the mission in India and spent my next six years in India. So what part of India did you spend those six years? So I started in Mumbai. I was four years in Mumbai, mm. which is formerly known as Bombay. Yep. Um, it's, interesting. it's an interesting place, Mumbai. I was there in the early 80s for a while. Yeah, interesting place. Yeah. How, yes, how, mean, how, how, how were you seen? You know, you're you're a, basically you know you're a, a foreigner. You're in India. You've 
kind of pushing a different religious um, story in a, in a society that's had a 5,000-year history of Hinduism? Various, various different ways. I mean, I think the majority of people that I interacted with in, the, in India were very polite. So I'd say I, I may not necessarily have a clear understanding of how I was seen or how our organisation was seen. Um, it, I believe we were seen as quite, quite positively amongst the Christian community in India, of which there's quite a large Christian community, um, a large minority. But amongst the broader community, um, we definitely had run-ins with the Hindu Nationalist Party that was in power in the state that Mumbai is in, Maharashtra. Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely had threats directed at us. Um, and so we were definitely not popular with them, uh, which is not surprising. I mean, given their politics, they any other minority groups are not popular with them. Um, oh. So what type of work were you doing in the community during those years? So my, the main thing that I did was work with the same training. The same training that I'd done, I helped run in Mumbai. So the idea is really to help train up other people and primarily local young Indian Christians who are more capable of working in their local context. Um, I mean, when we ran our training courses... There was a mix of people from all over the place, many from India, but also some coming from abroad to do the training. So we were doing running training with the hope that we'd help others then go out and do whatever they felt called to. Mm. So from Mumbai, where did you move to? So in Mumbai, well, while in Mumbai, I really wanted to connect in and work amongst the Muslim community there. And I think one of my driving forces, which I think is a natural desire within me, is to work amongst more, mar- be a part of more mar- marginalised groups. And in Mumbai, particularly with the politics of the place, but generally the Muslim community was a little more marginalised than the Hindu community. Um, so I had a real desire to work amongst the Muslim community. I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. Um, but I, I continued training, so I started training in Pune, where they run a course about Islamic culture and beliefs and how to convert Muslims <clears throat> or how to interact with Muslims with the final hope of converting them. Mm. Um, and while I was there, I met the w- woman who had become my wife, um, and we had a, we connected for a little while and eventually being a good traditional Christian in a traditional society trying to be follow those principles, I didn't ask her out. I asked, asked her to marry me. Um, we got married. Mm. Was, she, was she a local or was she somebody like She you? was, yes. She was a local. Yes, right. she was. How did her family feel about you getting married into the family? This is interesting. So they were a Christian family and mm. they'd been Christian for, I think, five generations. Right. Um, so there was no issues there. There was, look, the idea of being their daughter marrying a missionary Mm. was a popular one for them. Um, The realities of trying to integrate, because we actually lived for um, around two years with with her family, trying to integrate a Westerner who's quite individualistic into a family where my actions reflect on them, and so I need to be aware of that and tow their line, whether or not I'm comfortable with it, because we're family. It's what you're supposed to do in a more communal culture. Those That created difficulties. Um, I was quite set on what I believed was right and wrong and what I was supposed to do, and I was not necessarily as humble to listen to local wisdom and advice. Um, so, yeah, it, the idea, it was a popular one. The reality working it out was difficult at times. Um, but a good experience because I'd spent four years in India thinking, I know my way around India. I know how to integrate within the culture. 
Mm. And then he's getting married into an Indian family, realizing I'd learned almost nothing right. about integrating into the local culture. Right. But I had so much to learn, and yeah, it was. So I assume this put stresses on your relationship. Yes, yes, it did. Um, I mean, it all. Yes, it, it did. So, when did you leave India? So, we kind of went back and forth to India for a bit. We went to Australia for a year. Oh. Um, that would have, and then we spent a year and a half back in India, and then finally came back to Australia. Oh. Now I am struggling to think. So, my son, who is now eighteen, was one and a half when we got back to Australia the final time. Right. So that's 16, 17 years ago that we finally came back to Australia. So so the and children didn't really have that Indian experience, did they? Or? No. I mean, so I'm now divorced yeah. and have a new partner. Um, but my older two children, who were born from that first relationship, they continue to go back to India with their mum. So they have some connection. Right. You know, they visit all their relatives. Mm-hmm. They don't speak the local language. They don't speak Hindi. Um, my daughter often complains about that, but we didn't teach her when she was younger, and we, we made some attempt at it. But when there was only one, it was only her mum that actually knew Hindi well, so we didn't really use it at home that much. The kids quickly learnt that Anything they said in Hindi was only understood by one or two people, but everybody understood English, so it was just easier. Yeah. And they defaulted to that even when we tried to... Teach well, it's very Hindi. difficult. It's very difficult. Look, I come from a migrant background, and um, so I was, I was born here. My parents were born overseas, and by the time my children were born, uh, although we made some attempts to teach them, um, it didn't work out. And I reckon within a generation it's lost. Yes. Yeah. Unless unless you're a kind of an isolated community and you tend to, you know, everything, your integration is minimal and you just basically rely on that community to survive, then maybe you can get away for another generation. But I think after that, it's almost impossible. Yeah. 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 So, um, so what did you do when you came back? That is an excellent question. I'm trying to think what I did when I first came back. <laughs> well, it was, eight, it was about 17 years ago, so I can't yes, remember what yeah, I did I mean, yesterday. Look, I think, I think when I finally came back, so I'd, in this time I'd been in India, and prior to being in India, while I was in India, I'd come back and forth, and in the one and a, one and a half years in, bet- in the middle, mm-hmm. I'd always pick up labouring jobs, factory jobs. There was local factories near us where I knew a few people and would usually pick up work. So when we came back, finally, to actually settle in Australia, uh, my sister found me a job in uh, in a bank in Westpac. Um, so I worked in Westpac in their mm. document management. It seems to be a story of your life. Some woman finds you a job. <laughs> <laughs> First it's your aunt, then it's the woman you're attracted to, and then it was your sister. <laughs> no local initiative there, boy. <laughs> well, I would say that. I know. I would do that is largely my, yes, work history. <laughs> Sometimes we've got to laugh at ourselves. Shane, <laughs> don't worry about it. Uh, we've all got things like that in our lives. Yes. So were you, were you dealing with customers or you're in the back rooms, you know, making money? No, I was in the back rooms doing, um, scanning documents, um, filing documents. So. Sounds soul-destroying to me. Look, it, Look, at the time, um, you know, I, I worked there for a little while and then became the lead person on, in that particular part of our department um, and at the time was fairly sold on. You know, I was fairly happy in a corporate corporate role at the time, looking at working my way up. Those were things in my mind at the time, mm-hmm. um, which is a strange transition from having been in India where we probably lived on 40 bucks a week at most and you know lived a simple life we're focused on service of others 
in the way that we understood it and then coming back and getting a job and, and really actually thinking about you know working my way up getting a decent job um, yeah it was a bit of a shift yeah it's that latent teenage rebellion you never had you know <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> so how long this last this 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 dream at Westpac last for so eventually i um so I applied for a role upstairs in the one of the other departments. They offered it to me. I said, no, it's not quite. I, I then refused it because it wasn't exactly what I wanted. I think I was negotiating for more money. Right. <laughs> and so they said, well, if you're not going to take that, you have to leave this job. We're not keeping you on this role. Um, which was a bit of a shock for me. I didn't. I just expected I could do that. And I could just continue on in the role I had. So, so you realise that individual negotiation against a corporation doesn't get you far. Doesn't it? That's right. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's what right. they want us to do, you know. It's all about yes. you approach your boss and tell them what you want and you negotiate. You don't need a union, do you? That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I, I look back to then and the union rep came up and approached me once and I was a casual, mm-hmm. um, even though I was the lead um, person in the scanning segment. Um, I was a casual, and I asked him, what can a union do for casual? And I, I now know, you know, all the things that I could answer to that question. Mm. But back then he said, oh, probably not much. And right. he walked away. And I didn't join the union. Um, so. Uh, so what happens with this rude awakening? You're, you're jobless again. Did you look for another woman to find you a job? <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I went out and found another job. Similar role, um, I was doing document scanning and document management, um, found another role where I got a position that I could, that was lead scanner again, mm-hmm. with the possibility of becoming a team leader um, in the not too distant future, and that, that was how it worked out. I ended up being the team leader of the scanning department of about six people. Mm-hmm. Um, so early morning job, because mail comes in, got to scan it all, get it out to everyone who needs to see it. Um, and in a connection back to India, my role was to scan the documents, which is about efficiency of not having to carry paper to people's desks. We scan it. We essentially online it gets sent to all the people who have to do the work based on any letter that comes in. But once they'd done that, it was a pretty quick step to now we can outsource it to India. Right. So I ended up working quite closely with people in India um, in that role. This doesn't sound like the uh, Shay I met <laughs> on the uh, 20th of January. When did all this come to a screeching end, mate? Well, um, it also involved a woman. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got to work out which is the chicken and the egg. Um, so I, as my kids started to grow up, I really wanted more time with my kids, Um and so I started thinking about not working full-time. So I, I tried to find um, a role that was part-time. Um, and that put stress on my relationship. That started to put stress on the shifting of things around. Started to put stress on my relationship with my then-wife. Then um, and other, other factors at play. Um I also heard a bishop from Palestine. I'm probably mixing a whole lot of things together. That doesn't matter. It's your story. You can mix them. So there were some stresses on my relationship. I had heard a bishop from Palestine, a Palestinian bishop, talking about the situation in Palestine. Um, And then Operation cast lead happened, which was Israel bombing of Gaza um, in 2009, I believe it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was around Christmas time, so it may have gone, I think it went across a couple of years, but around 2009. And so these things coming together, I saw what was that? I heard from this bishop, he told me the situation in Palestine that he experienced. That really connected me into the people that growing up in Australia with the media as it is, 
my general impression of Palestinians was the news I saw about terrorist attacks. I hadn't. That's that's what had been had filtered into my head over my years of growing up, and then to meet this bishop who was this amazing man, who talked about how he built schools and tried to you know educate children, and the troubles he had that he could never get a, a he could never get a permanent building in in the West Bank of Palestine because the Israeli authorities just would never give it to him. So he just built anyway, and he just built these schools, and he served the local community. Um, it shift, started to shift my perceptions. I started to look into it. I started to think a lot about the situation in Palestine. And I, yeah, when Operation Task Lead happened, I saw rallies happening in Melbourne. And each time they happened, I thought, Next time I've got to know about it beforehand, so at least I can go along to that. At least I can do something and go along to this rally. Um, and by the second rally that I missed, I thought I've got to connect with someone. I've got to find some way that I can know about the next rally so I can go along and show my support. Um, and so I found a phone number online somewhere. I called up and they said, well, you should come along to this meeting. We've got a rally coming up, but come along to this meeting. I had no idea what it was. Um, what this meeting was, but I said, sure, yes, that'd be great. Um, and I came along and it was an organising meeting for the next rally. <laughs> so rather than going to a rally, then getting into organising... Well, you've got, you, you had the experience. Was, you've, got, you've had years of experience of organising things. Yes, but in a very different context. No, it, was, um, it was meant to be. It was meant to be. So, yeah, my first, first interaction with, I guess, activism um, was, was, yeah helping to organise and then going along to being part of the rallies in solidarity with Palestine while Gaza was being bombed by the Israelis. Hmm. So what, what did that Although lead to? I should, yeah. Sorry, I should say I had been to one rally before that right. and this speaks to my shift in my views of things. My rally that I went to before that was... I was invited by the church, and it was an anti-abortion rally. Mm-hmm. And I no longer hold the views that I held when I went to that rally, mm-hmm. but I did go there. That, that was actually the first rally I've ever been to. Right. So how old were you then? Uh, let me think. I would have been late 20s when so, I went to that, right. that rally. Right. Um, I believe. I, could, I mean, I could date it, look it up. It was when yeah. the no, 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 no. So, 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 so. Did the the Palestinian rallies, did that lead to anything else, any other activism? So the Palestinian rally was organised mostly by um, socialist groups. Mm-hmm. So you had Socialist Alliance, Socialist Alternative, and RSP was there. And I was kind of a token, token Christian. Um, I was the only Christian there, as far as I know. And so when they wanted to speak about Palestine at... Palm Sunday rally that was coming up, they suggested I go along as a representative from the, their coalition mm-hmm. to the Palm Sunday rally organising group and just offer to organise speakers that can speak to what's happening in Palestine. Is there anything else we can do? So I, I went along. That was the next step along my journey of being, um, yeah, a getting into activism, becoming an activist, becoming active in, you know, looking towards social change in that way. Um, Obviously, my time in India, I was looking towards social change, but in a different different worldview, different um, way of doing things. So, yeah, I went along to this Palm Sunday rally organising group. Um, It it turned out to be my first experience of organising where we had a... Undercover cop in the organising committee, uh, meeting, yeah, well, uh, which we of course didn't know at the time. No, welcome to later. the club. Welcome to the club. <laughs> I mean, they used to have. Oh, well, three CR was even better. In 1987, we actually had the police run a community program on three CR undercover. All they had to do was listen to the radio program to find what was going on. Right. Was was your undercover? Was your undercover cop the one who was talking about violent action? Because that what normally tends to happen. 
I have no idea. I mean, uh-huh. I'm, my memory's fairly bad, but he didn't stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, he really didn't stand out in the organising. Um, so he also came along to a training session about nonviolence, <clears throat> where we were running training, nonviolence training for um, Palestine solidarity activists. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, yeah, he he didn't stand out. He was fairly quiet and just came along. We should have given him all the photocopying to do, mm-hmm. but we didn't. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll tell you a funny so, story, yeah, just to... Just a funny story. I remember I organised a meeting. I think it was 1978 at the old um, YMCA in Elizabeth Street. We had public meetings on a regular basis, and one day these two, this new bloke turned up. And, oh, he was welcome, and as he was leaving the meeting, his suitcase fell open. He had a recording device in it, so we all laughed. <laughs> We thought, wow, we've made it. We're important enough to be recorded by ACA. So you've got to laugh. All right. Yes. <laughs> All right. So, so so, what drew you to non-violent direct action? So I guess so. when I was orga- helping with organise the Palm Sunday rally, um, I connected up with a couple of people who um, were Christian activists who were involved in direct action. And... I connected up a little bit, talked to them a little bit about what they were doing. But I had a friend in Dandenong where we were living who was already connected into this network and I didn't know about it. Um, and I'd been talking to him about what I'd been, I'd been doing and he said, well, look, we're, we've got this meeting and we're going to talk about peace activities for the coming year. Um, so that sounded interesting. I came along. And what I found out was that was actually not about peace activities for the coming year. That was about organising a single direct action. So I got into this meeting and found out, actually, this meeting is about organising a direct action. Um, and so that... Just going through the process of thinking about what do we want, you know, how are we going to do this action, what are our aims, it really drew me in. Um, and at the time, I, my relate my relationship with my wife was falling apart so I wasn't able to fully engage with it but just that process and seeing people and amazing people um, people who do so many different things for I guess to see uh, to support their local communities to um, see change in their local environment and we're also concerned about the war in Afghanistan and Iraq that Australia were involved in I really felt a strong connection to these people. Um, I kind of, even though I was involved in activism, I had this hangover from growing up of seeing activists as troublemakers who were just against everything and weren't doing any, anything positive. And I was seeing these activists that were doing things positive, and when I say positive, I mean they were doing, um, you know, supporting people in... Um, in their local community, doing things, I guess, local and that we could really see direct, immediate results. Um, And they were also doing this activism about worldwide issues. Mm. And I thought, this is amazing. I found these really amazing activists. They're not like all the rest of them. Because I still had that hangover of viewing activists as just against things. Mm. It was just... And it makes no sense looking back on it. I go, I... You know, over time I found that actually so many activists are doing so many amazing things, not just marching on the streets, which I now see as very positive, but I had a hangover of... um, But they're also doing things in their local communities. They're also doing things, so many different things that are hugely positive. Um, And my my view of, I guess, activism had to shift. And... These were the first people who I get got to see kind of their broad life and go, wow, they're amazing people, and I want to be part of that. And by extension, I want to be part of what they're doing, mm-hmm. um, which drew me into uh, yeah. anti-war activism. Yeah. And yeah. the major part of that was um, against the war in Afghanistan and campaigning to see our troops come home and also... Um, doing direct action at our local SAS base, uh, which is in just 
Down the just road. off of Queenscliff. Yeah, yeah, when you go to Friendly Queenscliff, you don't realise it's a major SAS base. Now, Shay, I've only got about four or five minutes left. What are sure. you doing? What are you doing these days? Um, so, I'm in terms of activism. I'm organising again around Swan Island or anti-war activism. There's been a bit of a lull. Um, so for 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 five years, we were doing we were campaigning at Swan Island, which is just off the coast of Queenscliff, and SAS and ASIS, which is um, Australian Intelligence Services. Um, base, um, and we were really calling for troops to come home, troops to be brought home, um, stop being involved in every US war. Um, and there's been a lull in that, and we're really looking at getting back into organising people in Melbourne around anti-war mm. activism. It's likely that the first thing we'll be doing is taking a whole lot of people up to try and get people coming up, going up to Brisbane for the arms fair that they have there in at the start of June. Um, so really hoping to see people head up there and support the crew in Brisbane that are campaigning to shut down that arms fair. Right. Are there any contact points if anybody's interested? If you were to go on Facebook and look up Swan Island Peace Swan Island Peace, mm-hmm. uh, you would connect in with the network of people that are involved in that. That's probably the easiest way to connect in. Mm. Look, I understand that uh, you were welcomed with open arms this year in comparison to the previous year where you were hogtied and, uh, you know, beaten up a bit. Is that correct? That's correct. Mm. So, yeah, in... I'm probably going to get the year wrong. 2014, um, activists went onto the base at Swan Island and were were hogtied, uh, or were stripped naked, tied up, had a hood put over their head, and threatened with various forms of violence, um, including drowning and rape. Um, yeah, normal and, SAS and, procedures, as we've seen in Afghanistan. Yes, yes. So, at, I mean, at the time, we'd been saying, you know, we believe that talking about believing that the SAS troops were involved in war crimes. Um, We saw it on Swan Island in a small way, um, with the way that activists were treated there by by Special Forces troops. And then more recently with the Brereton Report, we have seen seen even more. And and again, and still that's just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. Because when you look at the Brereton Report... You read through the incidents, and most of the incidents are, say, this is what was reported to happen. There's mm. not enough evidence to to prove it, so nothing, no further action is going to be taken. taken so most of what's reported mm. in there, no further action is being mm. taken. Mm. The 39 cases of killings that there may be further act, that there are going to be further actions on, is just a small percentage of what is in the report. Mm. Um, and then what's in the report is pro- we can be fairly certain is only a small percentage of what's actually happening over there. Shay, I'd like to thank you for the uh, journey through your life. I think it uh, highlights how different types of people come to activism in different ways. Uh, it's great to have you back in Australia, and I wish you and uh, your first family and your second family all the very best. And uh, pass on our regards to Jasmine if she remembers the old bloke with the uh, white hair. <laughs> Will do. Will do. All the very best and uh, you look after yourself because uh, you've taken on a very dangerous journey. I mean, you're confronting the state and it's uh, military and authoritarian apparatus and it's not an easy task for a non-violent uh, person who's involved in direct action. So all the very best to you, your family, your friends and uh, your fellow colleagues uh, in this struggle. Thank you, Joe. So it's up to us, the people. We need a treaty in this country. We need the end to the war in this country. And the only way we can do that is through a peace treaty, not the one you see in Victoria, 
not the one you see in Queensland, not the one you see in the Northern Territory, because they talk treaty and still lock our people up. They still kill our people. They still desecrate our land and our water. A treaty means peace. A treaty means equality. And a treaty means justice. Thank you. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 94198377. been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.